1: Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
2: Hello, it's Sunday the 6th of March. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith.
3: And with me, Dr Katani.
2: It was on this day in 1899 that the German pharmaceutical company Bayer Trademarked what's become one of the most important drugs of all time. It's literally saved millions of lives. That drug was aspirin, so we're taking a look at how it's gone from being the world's most popular painkiller to a powerful preventative against heart attacks, strokes, cancers and even Alzheimer's.
3: Happy birthday, Aspirin. Plus, we've got news of a new discovery suggesting that the chemistry of life could have hitched a ride to Earth in a meteorite, and why we need to be careful with stem cells, and new studies found that they have an above-average chance of carrying cancer-causing genetic changes.
2: Thank you, Kat. And talking of Aspirin...
3: Hi, I'm Andrew McCluskey from Edinburgh, Scotland,
4: and I was wondering how pain relief drugs target pain and why we don't go numb in random parts of our body.
2: The answer to how painkillers hit pain just where it hurts is also on the way. Meanwhile, if you'd like to contact us on Twitter, you tweet at Naked Scientists. via Facebook. You can get there uh, by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook or drop us an email. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
1: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
2: Well, this is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dr Katani. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest breakthroughs, and I think this one qualifies Cat as certainly being meteoric.
3: Absolutely. Yes, this is about the origins of life on Earth, which is a hotly debated topic among scientists. Now, one theory suggests that even if whole organisms didn't come to Earth carried by meteorites, then maybe meteorites brought some of the building blocks to make amino acids. These are the chemicals that make up proteins. Now, tests on a meteorite with the catchy name of CR2 grave Nunatax 95229 provides more evidence that meteorites might have brought these building blocks to Earth kick-starting the chain of events that led to the evolution of life here.
2: So what is this meteorite and why is this particular one so special?
3: Well this is a type of meteorite called a carbonaceous chondrite and these are meteorites that contain a range of organic matter including amino acids. Now because of this some scientists think that they might have seeded life using these chemicals when they fell from space providing the primitive building blocks for the formation of DNA and proteins which ultimately led to life as we know it. But studies of similar meteorites haven't actually come up with solid evidence for this because the chemicals are a real mix of all sorts of things, most of which aren't really these fundamental building blocks that could be used to create the molecules of life. Now this grave meteorite spun off from an asteroid and landed in Antarctica back in 1995 and researchers led by Sandra Pizzarello and her colleagues in the US analyzed the chemical makeup of the meteorite using high pressure water and a temperature of 300 degrees centigrade and those are conditions designed to both mimic the asteroid where the meteorite was made and the conditions on the early earth
2: and what what happened
3: Well they've published their results in the journal PNAS this week and they discovered that their asteroid actually contains a surprisingly high amount of ammonia. This is a chemical precursor to amino acids and the levels were much higher than you might expect on Earth at the time.
2: Why is that important?
3: Well, given the chemical makeup of similar meteorites and the fact that most of them only contain compounds built up of rings of carbon atoms, sort of hydrocarbons, this is quite unusual and it's the first find of its kind. And further analysis showed that the ammonia in the meteorite could have only come from the original asteroid where where the meteorite was born and it suggests that there was actually a lot of ammonia around in that environment.
2: But what does this actually tell us about spawning life on Earth? How does it link to that?
3: Well, nitrogen, which is a key part of ammonia, is the fourth most common reactive element in the whole universe. And here on Earth, it's a vital component of proteins as well as DNA and RNA, the genetic information within living cells. And it is completely indispensable for life. Now, ammonia plays a key role in many chemical reactions, including the reactions that created these molecules of life. But from what we know of the conditions on the early Earth, it's been really hard for scientists to figure out how this might actually have worked. For start, the evidence suggests that the early Earth's atmosphere just didn't have a lot of ammonia in it. And we do know that sunlight can break down ammonia, which would have been a big problem. But the discovery that meteorites can actually contain relatively large amounts of free ammonia suggests an alternative route for this chemical to turn up and get involved in the chemical action that might have led to the generation of these molecular building blocks of life all those millions of years ago. And it does add weight to the idea that at least some of the molecules that kick-started life on Earth may have come from space.
2: So it basically injects the right sort of chemistry in the right place at the right time and this is what then enables life to capitalise on that nitrogen source and start using it.
3: Exactly. It's providing free ammonia in the right form, in the right time, in the right place.
2: Thank you very much, Kat. Well, one thing that caught my eye this week, uh, there's a paper which was published in the journal Nature by... Kun Zhang and his colleagues. He's a researcher at the University of California, San Diego. And they were looking at stem cells because obviously very important stem cells. We have the opportunity with them potentially to revolutionise medical treatments. We could take a person's own cells, like a skin cell, and by using various reprogramming techniques that have now been developed, you can produce stem cells from adult cells. And those stem cells, which are called induced pluripotent stem cells, can then be persuaded chemically to turn into almost any other tissue in the body so you could therefore repair damaged body parts using these cells as a a sort of starting material and because they're your own cells there's no problem with the immune system rejecting them big question was asked though by this group at UCSD which is that what is the genetic integrity of these cells are they actually safe? And surprisingly, no one had actually asked this question before. And what they do very elegantly in this paper is that they go to seven different laboratories and ask them for 22 different lines of stem cells that have been made, and they genetically sequence those stem cells. And then they go to the cells that they were made from, and they genetically sequence those, and they compare the two. Now, Obviously, if the stem cells have got full genomic integrity and there's no damage to their DNA happening, then one should match the other. But the team were actually quite surprised to find at least tenfold more mutations, DNA changes, in the derived stem cells than they should have done based on cells that were just kept in culture for as long as these cells were, compared with the parents. And this suggests that actually these changes have been introduced by the reprogramming process.
3: Well, this sounds like pretty bad news because obviously if you get mutations in cells then it can make them do all sorts of weird things like turn into cancer. Why do they think these changes might have happened?
2: Well, they don't know exactly why this happens. When these cells are reprogrammed, what that means is that usually up to four genes are added. You can do this via a variety of techniques, often a genomic uh, or a genetically modified virus is used to deliver these extra genes. And it might be that this, in the process of doing that, it makes the cells become vulnerable to their DNA getting damaged. But there's also a, a slightly more interesting suggestion that they put forward in their paper, which is that it might be a selection phenomenon. In other words, the kinds of genes that are getting changed might make the cells, when those genes are changed, grow better. And therefore, the ones that are more likely to be in the culture are the ones that grow the best and outgrow all of the ones that don't have these changes. And the evidence for that is that they looked at the way DNA changes. And there's one way that DNA can change called a synonymous mutation. And what that means is that although you change a genetic letter in the DNA, you don't actually change the protein that the DNA codes for, for various reasons. Now, you can also get another kind of mutation called a non-synonymous mutation, and that's where you change the DNA sequence and it changes the protein recipe and the cell behaves differently. Now, if the DNA was being mutated randomly, the numbers of those sorts of DNA changes should be relatively equal, the synonymous and the non-synonymous ones. Actually, when they check for that, they find that the non-synonymous ones occur two and a half times more commonly than the synonymous ones, and this suggests that the cells are gaining functions in some way, which is making them grow better, and therefore they're more being more likely to get selected for, for growing, and therefore that's why this has come up.
3: It's been really interesting to see how this kind of research maps onto the research that's being done in cancer stem cells, which obviously uh, a similar problem is when stem cells go rogue in the body. So, uh, fascinating stuff. Also in the news this week, researchers at Rice University have developed a new way to etch structures into stacked piles of graphene, the marvellous material consisting of a single layer of carbon atoms. Now, this could allow manufacturers to make computer chips from graphene in much the same way as they currently do for silicon. But sometimes in science, you make a great discovery entirely by accident. And this was just one of those cases, as Professor Jim Tour explained to Chris earlier this week.
5: What we set out to do was to... Convert graphene to graphene, and what that is is taking the carbon structure of graphene, which is a bunch of six-membered rings in a plane, and attaching hydrogen to it. That makes then graphene, and that would make uh, an area that w- would be non-conductive. And we thought if we could pattern zinc upon graphene we could then use the hydrogen that's generated from the zinc reduction reaction from where zinc is treated with acid to hydrogenate the graphene to graphene. But what happened was it turned out that wherever the, the zinc landed, it removed the graphene layer but left the underlying layer completely intact.
2: It's really reminiscent of what people do with silicon and lasers, to make microchips, isn't it? But you're doing this using zinc and graphene, which is interesting, because people are talking about using graphene as a material to make the next
5: generation of microchips. Precisely, and so this constitutes lithography. Lithography is the way we make computer chips. You take a big silicon wafer and you chip away at it using chemicals and light to make the small features, namely transistors and wires, for example. So one takes a mask and has certain areas, holes in the mask, and then shines light through those holes, and that will develop what are called resists on top of the silicon to develop the silicon and build up these structures that we've seen on chips. But now to be able to do this in graphene brings graphene one step closer, and so There is a huge difference between a monolayer and a bilayer of graphene. A monolayer of graphene is a metal. It doesn't have a band gap. It's not something that's easily made into a transistor. But if you have two layers of graphene, it opens up a gap, and it becomes a little bit more like silicon, where you can make it into a transistor. And so to be able to have one layer or two layers or three layers, which can be more conductive then you, you can have different devices next to each other and that's what you want you want to have a heterogeneity in devices you don't want all devices to be exactly the same so it's a it's a new tool in the toolbox for making graphene into electronic chips do you actually know though jim what
2: the zinc is doing why this actually works to strip away these single layers and leave the one underneath
5: untouched I think we have a reasonable idea. So what happens is, is the zinc is sputtered on the surface. So that will cause zinc atoms to fly up from a chunk of zinc metal and to hit the surface that we're trying to pattern. And you make a mask and wherever you want the metal to go, you have holes in the mask and it hits the surface. So what happens is about 0.5 percent of the zinc atoms come with enough energy to actually knock out a carbon atom from the graphene and substitute in with a zinc atom. The zinc metal has a very high oxidation potential so it's really begging to oxidize rather rapidly and that's going to then leave cause the zinc atom to come out and you'll get an oxygen carbon bond. So wherever an, a zinc atom had been, now the carbon atom is knocked out and the surrounding carbon atoms become oxygenated. So what you end up with is instead of a sheet of graphene now, you have a sheet of graphene with holes in it. Then what's done is we put it into acid and acid then strips away the zinc and in stripping away the zinc it generates hydrogen and that bubbles, and that helps to wash away these small pieces of graphene that have now been diced up on the surface. But the zinc atoms that hit never had enough energy to go through one layer and affect the second layer below. And so it turns out to be quite a selective technique that's not only uh, shown now with zinc. We showed we could do it with aluminum as well. So that's a reasonable uh, understanding that we have now of the mechanism.
2: And once you cut through by substituting oxygens onto some of these areas so they may be removed and floated off. The residual graphene from the layer, where you've got, say, a step, is the bit that remains behind stable, or will that chemically deteriorate with time?
5: Everything that we have seen at the step edge, where you have one sheet of graphene that is one step higher than the sheet below it, that is stable. We haven't seen that curling up. We haven't seen that undergoing any problem. It undoubtedly has different atoms at the edge. There's going to have to be either hydrogen atoms or oxygen atoms at that very edge, but no, there is no delamination that occurs. The other fascinating point about this is lithography is always done in the industry, but we have hit the ultimate in lithography. It is single atom layer precision. It will never get better than this. So in other words, in a thousand years, if they're doing lithography, they can't do better than this. We are stripping off a single atomic layer. You can't cut an atom in half. That's as thin as you're going to get. This shows that we can have precision that you could never have in silicon, single atom resolution.
2: And you think that this will be a practical way to make, if you had to, a microchip of the future using graphene as a base material?
5: It's certainly a new wrench in the toolbox. There was no way to do this before. So if we are going to make large-scale patterns out of graphene, this is definitely a way to do it. And it uses methodologies that are commonly used in silicon manufacture. So
3: there you have it, a technique that will never be bettered for a thousand years. Uh, That was Professor Jim Tour from Rice University talking about his work that may make ousting silicon from its position at the heart of the microprocessor industry that little bit easier, and he's published that in the journal Science this week.
2: Beautiful paper, actually. There's a little nano owl that they've made etched in graphene, if you want to go and have a look at the paper. Now, another interesting discovery that was announced this week relates to the female genital tract because uh, there's an interesting observation that's been made here that there are large amounts of antibody in this area because obviously it's a portal of entry for infection and you've got to defend anything where you could get infected somehow and what the researchers have found is that there are antibodies there but they're the same kinds of antibodies that normally go around in the bloodstream So they're obviously doing a very important job, but the big question is, how do they get there? Because if we can work out how they get there, then we might be able to work out how to put even more of them there and make even better vaccines and treatments for things like sexually transmitted infections, which, if you're in a country where HIV is extremely prevalent could save your life. And what Xiaoping Zhu and his colleagues have published in the journal PNAS this week, they're from the University of Maryland, is an amazing discovery really because they took cell samples from all the different types of tissue you find in the female genital tract and they looked at which genes were being expressed there and they found that one particular gene, which is called FCRN, is intriguing because this is the same gene that a developing baby turns on in the placenta to grab antibodies from the mum's bloodstream and put them into the baby's bloodstream so that when the baby comes out it has what's called passive immunity it's protected for a little while while its own immune system learns to experience the environment and defend the baby so it gets it, it sort of borrows its immune system from its mother if you like and what the mature or adult female is doing is using the same gene to take antibody from the bloodstream and put it onto the epithelial in other words skin surface to protect this this site and the researchers then go on to prove using mice if you delete this gene this fcrn gene then the mice can no longer defend themselves in this way so it's doing a very important job now we understand how it works, it might be possible to then exploit this to make vaccines that actually put even more antibody than the current generations of antibodies do onto that site and provide enhanced protection.
3: I shall never look at my lady bits in the same way again. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for all our news stories are online at thenakedscientist.com news.
1: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists.
2: Well, you're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani. Hello. Coming up, the story of aspirin and how it can help to prevent a range of different diseases. Uh, Oxford University's clinician Peter Rothwell will be here to talk with us
3: about it. Kat? Now, every week, somewhere in the world, an earthquake occurs that's big enough to cause serious damage to people, roads and bridges, as we've heard from uh, uh, New Zealand. Seismologists monitor this activity to try and learn more about the geological processes underlying the phenomenon. Richard Hollingham went to visit one part of the network of UK earthquake monitoring stations, which was Hidden beneath the Lecture Theatre at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, with Brian Baptie from the British Geological Survey.
6: So we've just opened up the hinged large trapdoor on the floor to reveal, it's like Harry Potter this, a staircase that goes down beneath the lecture theatres.
7: So let's head down the stairs. It's the first door. Second door. Finally, this is the entrance to the vault.
6: OK, so we've come into... What appears to be a concrete-lined room with a bit of water dripping from the ceiling, and there are three hefty concrete blocks on the floor, like enormous pieces of Lego.
7: Well, these are what we call piers, and they're built directly onto the rock of the hill. So this hill's an old volcano, and these piers are built directly onto it, and if you look around, you'll see that the floor is actually suspended so that we, when we're walking around on the floor in here, we don't actually come into contact with the piers. And on the piers, on each of the piers, there's a seismometer, which looks like a very large tin can, but they're actually incredibly sensitive devices. They can pick up vibrations that are around thousandths of a millimetre. And what are you picking up, then, on these seismometers? Well, we pick up earthquakes from all around the world, so large or even moderate-sized earthquakes from the other side of the world. We also pick up vibrations that are rather closer to home, and we actually detect between 100 and 200 earthquakes that come from the British Isles and, and immediate offshore area every year.
6: So 200 a year in the UK? Up to year. Now, this is part of a network, isn't it? This, this isn't the only one. There are, what, secret vaults around, around the country?
7: Yeah, we have about 100 instruments all around the country. Not all the vaults are as big as this one. Some of them are in underground tunnels or, or old bunkers. Some, some of them are just buried in holes in the ground. And the data from all those instruments is transferred automatically using the Internet back to our offices in Edinburgh, and then we can analyse that data and use it to work out exactly where the earthquake was, when it occurred, and how big it was.
6: Well, we made it out of the vaults and into the offices of the British Geological Survey. Now, Brian, this office was where you used to analyse the sounds of earthquakes.
7: That's right. This office is what was called the replay lab. And although nowadays we record all our data digitally and analyse it using computers, well, about 10 years ago, all our data used to be recorded on analogue magnetic tapes, and our analysts would listen to these tapes, speed it up about 50 to 100 times, and then they would use their ears to tell the difference between different types of seismic events.
6: And you've got some of the recordings of, of earthquakes, some of the things you can, you can hear.
7: So that was a magnitude 5.4 earthquake from North Wales, recorded somewhere in Britain. It was actually the largest earthquake that we, we have a recording of in, in, in our archive. You can tell when you listen to it, it's actually really quite a distinctive double sound, and that's because there are two seismic waves that propagate when there's an earthquake through the Earth, and those travel at different speeds and arrive at the receiver at different times. The next one is an underwater explosion. So typically we pick up quite a few of these underwater explosions every year. It's when the, the Navy, quite often they find old World War II mines, or perhaps the Navy are doing some kind of naval exercise where they're setting off explosions in, in the water, and we can pick them up. Sounds like a shot being fired. That's right. So much, much higher pitch, completely different type of signal. We didn't have the distinctive double bang. Uh, we just had this kind of relatively high-pitched pop, if you like, which you can... Think about it in terms of something going to pop in the water and creating a huge bubble. And the final one. So the final one is a magnitude 6.9 earthquake from Japan. So the vibrations from this earthquake have travelled all the way through the earth and been recorded here.
6: So let's get this straight. That was a recording made here of an earthquake in Japan on the other side of the world.
7: That's right. When you have really large earthquakes, uh, huge amounts of energy is released and that energy travels all the way through the Earth and we can pick up the vibrations from that earthquake.
3: Boom! That was amazing. That was Brian Bapty from the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can download the latest Planet Earth podcast as well as other Planet Earth online resources at thenakedscientist.com slash planetearth.
2: Thank you very much, Kat. We're going to be talking about aspirin very shortly. If you'd like to get in touch with us to ask us a question about the science of aspirin, as many have, nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook will take you to our Facebook page where you can put your messages or you can at Naked Scientists send us a tweet, the email address chris at scientist.com. So hopefully one of those works for you. Um, I've got a question here from Bao Yue who is on Second Life and said, could Chris's second story, which was in relation to the women secreting antibody through the genitals from the blood, could this be uh, related to better immunity amongst women who have already born children? The answer is no, because the same gene which is used by a baby is used by these women because they carry it anyway. They're just activating it in a different set of tissues to get the same effect as the gene would have in a baby developing inside the mother, but at a totally different site. And that's what's wonderful about the huge genetic recipe book we have. We can redeploy the genes and their functions all over the body to do the same job in different places or even by tweaking the gene a bit a totally different job using almost the same gene.
3: We are looking at the science of aspirin this week because today that's the 6th of March is a significant date in the drug's history and to explain why here's Sarah Castor-Perry.
8: On the 6th of March 1899, the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company officially registered aspirin as a trademark, following their chemist Felix Hoffman's successful synthesis of a stable form of acetyl salicylic acid, the chemical name for aspirin, in 1897. Best known as an analgesic against aches and pains, aspirin can also be used as an antipyretic to control fever and as an anti inflammatory to reduce inflammation. It also has the effect of making blood less likely to clot, known as anticoagulation. It was one of the first non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to be discovered, another example being ibuprofen, and it had the additional benefit of masking pain without impairing consciousness, and it wasn't addictive like the opiate painkilling alternatives like laudanum. By the time of the discovery of aspirin, Medicines based on similar chemical compounds called salicins that were derived from plants like meadowsweet and the bark of willow trees, which is salix in Latin, hence the name of the drug, had already been in use for agues, aches and fevers for over three and a half thousand years. One proponent was a priest from Chipping Norton named Edward Stone, who's credited with conducting one of the world's first clinical trials having found willow bark to be beneficial for his own aches and pains. In the 1760s, he prepared further extracts that he administered to 50 parishioners, whom he later wrote in a report to the Royal Society in 1763, gained relief from a range of agues and intermitting disorders. However, it was only much later, during the 1820s and 30s, that chemists in Italy and Germany finally managed to purify the active salicin from the plant remedies. Salicin, it turns out, is chemically very similar to aspirin, except that it contains a sugar molecule where aspirin has a short chain of carbon atoms. When ingested, salicin is oxidised to its active form, salicylic acid. But although the medicinal use of salicin, and hence salicylic acid, grew throughout the mid-1800s, it did have several drawbacks, not least the fact that it caused severe irritation to the lining of the stomach and even ulceration and bleeding. Around the time that this was happening, an industry began to grow in Germany to investigate medicines that might be made from the aniline cloth dyes that were being produced from coal tar. And surprising as it might sound, given the starting point of coal tar, a lot of compounds were discovered that could be used to reduce fever and pain. One German dye firm called Friedrich Bayer & Company began to expand to investigate some of these potential medicines further, seeing that there was money to be made. It was this company that a young chemist called Felix Hoffman joined in 1894 to work with two more senior scientists, Arthur Eichengrün and Heinrich Dreser. In 1897, Eichengruen instructed Hoffman to find an alternative form of salicylic acid that would be less irritating to the stomach, but would still produce anti-fever and pain effects. In his lab book entry for the 10th of October 1897, Hoffman declared that he'd synthesised a pure form of acetylsalicylic acid, by refluxing salicylic acid with acetic anhydride. This ended up producing a much purer and more stable form of salicylic acid than had been produced before using other techniques. Clinical trials suggested it was just as effective as salicylic acid, but far more stomach-friendly and with fewer of the unpleasant side effects. Unfortunately, the company couldn't patent their potential new pharmacological blockbuster because it turned out that the acetylsalicylate molecule had been made and published previously. A French chemist called Charles-Frederick Gerhardt had described the synthesis of the substance in 1853, but had never followed up on his discovery. Instead, Bayer elected to trademark the agent, constructing the name, it's claimed, from the A for acetyl, The SPIR from the meadowsweet plant they extracted the salicylic acid from, Spirae ulmaria, and the IN came from the fact that ending drug names with IN was the IN thing to do at the time. The drug was initially produced as a powder and then in pill form from 1915. Aided by the 1918 flu pandemic, where aspirin was very successful in controlling pain and fever of flu victims, its popularity skyrocketed. However, the 1956 launch of the alternative agent paracetamol, followed by the entry of ibuprofen in 1969, together with mounting evidence that aspirin could occasionally cause a potentially fatal brain swelling disorder called Ray's syndrome in some children, dented its popularity. It's now not advised to be given to children under 16. However, the tarnished image of aspirin was reversed when its powerful anticoagulant effects were shown in the 1970s, and after this, aspirin came back into mainstream medical use, and it remains today the preventative mainstay measure against strokes and heart attacks by reducing the likelihood of a blood clot. More recent studies have also confirmed that this simple agent can also prevent certain forms of cancers and stop them recurring after treatment, and can even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. The events that led to the production and widespread use of aspirin are an important chapter in the history of medicine. It was the first modern painkilling drug that could be used without affecting a person's day-to-day activities and has brought relief to millions of people over the years. Although less in use as a painkiller now, it still plays a vital role in medicine.
3: So, happy birthday, aspirin. That was Sarah Castor-Perry telling the story of aspirin. Chris. Thank you, Kat.
2: You know, that she said uh, where they got the name from. One other theory I did hear put forward is that Aspirin was actually named after uh, a bishop, a Neapolitan bishop, in fact, called Bishop Aspirinus. And guess what he was the patron saint of? Uh, Headaches. It was, yeah. Ah, Apparently, (laughs) I didn't know there was a patron saint of headaches until I looked that up, so there you go. Uh, One thing that can take pain away is a dose of ice, which can make an aching thing feel a little bit better. Doreen in Warrington perhaps was thinking this when she asks, is hot water heavier than cold water? Because I was watching the ice float in my water, she says. Why should it float? Well, the answer is hot water is actually a little bit heavier than cold water because, as Einstein told us, E equals mc squared. So if E, the energy in the water goes up because it's hotter then mass m must also go up to keep the equation balanced so there will be a very subtle and very tiny increase in mass of the hot water over the cold water but the reason the ice floats is actually because it's a lot less dense than the water the ice is made of water but it's pushing out of the way a bigger volume of water than the ice itself weighs and for that reason it's actually feeling a big push up from the water underneath it which makes it float so that's the reason OK, well we're talking about aspirin this week and Sarah mentioned aspirin um, was touted originally as a treatment for pain but uh, 100 years on we now know that it's actually a lot more powerful than that. And Peter Rothwell is Oxford University's Professor of Clinical Neurology and he's with us to discuss what else aspirin can do. Hello Peter. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So tell us what what else can aspirin do apart from be a very good painkiller? Well as
9: you say it's still a good painkiller and a lot of people use it for that reason particularly uh, patients with migraine for example. Um, but it's probably used more widely now as uh, as a what's called an antiplatelet drug or an antithrombotic drug to reduce the risk of blood clots, particularly in people at risk of heart attacks and strokes. As your piece earlier suggested, it um, was realised slowly in the nineteen fifties and sixties that people that took aspirin regularly seemed to have a lower risk of uh, recurrent heart attacks, in particular. And then it was found that the mechanism of this was by inhibiting platelets, which are one of the crucial cells that form blood clots. And therefore, people started to do clinical trials in the 1970s to see whether in randomised trials it really would be effective in preventing heart attacks and strokes. And generally speaking, these have all been positive. It reduces the risk
2: of a stroke or a heart attack, if you've had one already, by about a third. It's quite surprising that someone made the observation that the aspirin users were having fewer heart attacks and strokes because they didn't initially suspect that might be the case so they wouldn't have been looking for it. No,
9: it's one of those fortuitous observations as uh, as things often are in medicine. In fact, it was it was a very uh, far-sighted general practitioner that noticed in in his patients.
2: It's a bit like the cure for smallpox, I suppose, the vaccine for smallpox, which which was another GP, Edward Jenner in that case. So tell us a bit about how aspirin actually works. How is it doing what it's doing both to cure a migraine, as you mentioned, but also to do these other things to stop blood clotting quite so keenly?
9: Well, in relation to blood clots, what it does uh, is inhibit the process, where, one of the processes whereby platelets become activated Of course, we've all got platelets going around in our blood all the time, and uh, for the most part, they they don't become activated. But when they come across... Uh, various stimuli such as collagen they they become activated and clumped together and form a blood clot and one of the mechanisms that this happens is via an enzyme called uh, cyclooxygenase uh, which is part of the pathway that uh, synthesizes prostaglandins and aspirin uh, irreversibly inhibits uh, the cyclooxygenase enzymes and, and therefore blocks that particular pathway the platelets still work via other pathways but they just work less effectively
2: what about the side effects, though? Because um, as we heard from Sarah's history piece just now, people had realised that there were these chemicals in nature, they took them from meadowsweet and willow bark and things, which were very good at taking away the painful problem. Presumably they're also going to have some of this antithrombotic effect, but they also had the side effect of making people have very bad stomach ache. So why does aspirin not do that as much as salicylate, but still nonetheless does cause a problem? well it still it still does it unfortunately, and there are essentially
9: two mechanisms involved one one is that the antiplatelet effect itself means that when the stomach lining is damaged, you're more likely to bleed but in, in addition to that, aspirin does seem to inhibit the healing process that uh, maintains the uh, endothelium, as it were the uh, the protective surface of the stomach lining
2: I see so. Apart from the fact that it, it does stop blood from clotting and has had a, a very dramatic effect on strokes and also on heart attacks, saving literally millions of lives, how is it now emerging that it's doing all these other things? Because you know, the, the, the benefits don't stop there, do they? Um, as we've alluded to, there are benefits for cancer and also potentially for dementia.
9: Well, certainly the benefits for cancer are becoming more clear-cut. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about whether it uh, it, it has a beneficial effect for dementia, but it, it's certainly a possibility. What's clear is that um, the effect of aspirin, particularly on this COX-2 enzyme system, occurs in most tissues that express the enzyme, which is the majority of tissues in the body. And so, therefore, it has a broader anti-inflammatory effect. In, in fact, that's one of the mechanisms that it works in terms of Reducing fever and reducing pain—it's an anti-inflammatory drug, and inflammation is is a very important process in the development of several diseases, into, including cancers. And so, it, it's looked for for a, two or three decades now, as though, from the epidemiology, aspirin potentially could prevent, at least, some of the more common cancers. And in, in recent years, people have now followed up patients who were in trials of aspirin many years ago to see whether uh, there is any evidence of reduced risk of cancer. And over the last year, several
2: studies have shown that in fact that's the case. And does the same mechanism apply probably, if it's going to, in the anti-dementia protective effect?
9: Certainly there's there's a link between uh, inflammation and dementia, inflammation and depression and, and certain other neurological diseases. So one might expect an anti-inflammatory effect to have some benefits in, uh, in terms of neurological diseases. But there are a whole host of other things that aspirin does which, uh, which could also be involved and it's not clear if there is an effect what the mechanism is.
2: Do you have any feeling, Peter, for when someone should start to take aspirin? At what age would you need to initiate it in order to get all these benefits, or is that a very hard question to answer? It's hard to be absolutely certain about it for, for an individual. I think what we can say is
9: that the risk of heart attacks and strokes, which is obviously one of the things you're trying to prevent, increases with age. And when you get into your mid-50s, particularly if you have a family history or or any other risk factors. Trials have already shown that uh, the benefits of aspirin in terms of prevention of heart attacks and strokes outweighs the risk of bleeding. It's just that it's a relatively small benefit for the individual. But the more recent data showing that uh, aspirin also reduces the risk of death due to several common cancers, when, when added to that existing benefit, really does tend to push things towards significant benefit. The complication is that the risk of bleeding increases with age. And so when you get to your mid-70s, certainly the risk of bleeding probably outweighs the benefit. So one might argue that people should consider taking aspirin from the age of about 50 to 75.
2: Because there was a paper that was published a year or so ago from the group in Edinburgh, and they were actually saying that quite a few people do actually self-treat with aspirin. They've just read the newspaper reports in various publications saying that aspirin has all these beneficial effects. They've therefore put themselves on it. And they were saying, actually, the balance is that it could be bad to do that because the people who don't need it will be doing it equally alongside people who do need it. And so one could balance out the other. And there'll be some people who will suffer at the hands of taking aspirin they didn't need. There will be others who do benefit a bit.
9: That's absolutely right. And there's, as always with uh, with self-treatment, it, it often tends to be the fairly health-conscious people that think about taking aspirin and, uh, and often they're the people with a relatively low vascular risk because they don't smoke, they have few other risk factors, they exercise regularly, have a good diet. Um, so it is, it is a question of balancing the the risks and the benefits. But once you get into your 50s, certainly your 60s, if, if you have one or two vascular risk factors, then usually you're, you're into that group where the, the benefit will, uh, will outweigh the risks, certainly for preventing heart attacks and strokes. And then when you add on the reduction in deaths due to fatal cancers, it, it does push things in, in that direction for a lot of people.
2: And what about if someone's on an aspirin-like drug, which isn't aspirin, and I'm thinking things like ibuprofen, if they've got some aches and pains, it works very similarly to aspirin, doesn't it? Does it also confer the same risk benefits in all of these other things that you've outlined? It's a good question. It doesn't
9: seem to so well, at least, for uh, prevention of heart attacks and strokes. But it may well have the drugs like ibuprofen and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may have similar benefits for cancer. We don't have hard data from randomised trials, but the epidemiology suggests the effects may may be similar for cancer.
2: Peter, thank you very much. That's Peter Rothwell. He's the Professor of Clinical Neurology at Oxford University. And incidentally, we'll be finding out later in the programme how painkillers know how to hit pain where it hurts. So stay tuned for the answer for that one, Kat.
3: So we've heard how drugs like aspirin can be used and maybe how they work, but how are they actually made? For this week's Naked Engineering, Mir and Dave have been on a road trip to look at GlaxoSmithKline's tablet manufacturing site in Ware, Hertfordshire. The Director of Innovation, Andy Robertson, showed them around.
10: Where we make a wide range of drugs. We make drugs that people will recognise the diseases they treat. We make drugs for HIV and AIDS. We also do a lot of drugs for cancer. So we have a wide range of products with a wide range of applications.
11: So, from the beginning, how are tablets made?
10: Well, this site at Ware is what we call a secondary process site. So, what we do is we bring in raw materials, active ingredients then we have to measure them out in the same and correct ratios to form the tablet. So I guess if you've got lots of different ingredients in there, they must have different jobs. What goes into the tablet really depends on the product, and each of the things going into the tablet have a different function. For example, you might require to put a bulking agent in there. So if the active ingredients is so strong, there wouldn't be enough to create a tablet, so you need a bulking agent to actually form the tablet. The other things that you might need is a binder to bind the uh, powders together, as well as a disintegrant.
12: To help you absorb it once it's in your stomach or whatever, to let the tablet fall apart, and so it's absorbed quick enough.
11: Once this is all together, what next?
10: Well, obviously, when they've been put all together in the correct ratio, we have to blend them to make sure they're all well mixed, so the blend becomes homogenised. I guess this is a really critical step because if it's badly mixed, you might get one tablet which is
12: all filler and another tablet which is all active ingredient. Absolutely.
11: But what kind of scales are we talking about here? We're in one of your control rooms now and I can look out onto one of these large mixing bins. It's a metre wide and a metre high, so it's quite big.
10: Those bins hold up to 400 kilos. Just to put in context, those 400 kilos of bins, they can make up to 800,000 tablets.
11: One possible next step, having mixed together the ingredients, is granulation. So we're now in a large granulation room, standing by what looks like a hole in the ceiling out of which the ingredients actually drop into this processor.
10: Yeah, it is a bit like a food processor. So what you do is you put the contents of the bin into this food processor to change the properties of the material. So you're creating a granule and you're having to use a binding agent And water.
12: So instead of having a mixture of several different powders, you now have a load of granules, each one is made up of all your different powders. This must stop the powders separating out
10: um, in later parts of the process. Absolutely right, that's uh, one of the main reasons for doing it. This machine makes granules, and then it discharges the granules through a wet mill. And the purpose of the wet mill is to chop them up into very small bits again before it drops into a fluid bed dryer. And the fluid bed dryer, you can see it's four metres high. It's around a metre and a half in diameter. What that then does, it fluidizes the powder by passing air through it continuously. This is aiming to dry off excess water out of the granule, but not too much that it becomes a powder again.
11: Coming out of the bottom, then, I imagine, is the perfect formulation to then make a tablet.
10: It's nearly ready to be made into a tablet. Before we put it into a compression machine to make tablets, we add a lubrication substance called magstearate. This allows the tablet to be pressed out of the tablet after forming without breaking it.
11: Now, having gotten everything together, ingredients of the right consistency, it's now time, I guess, to make tablets.
10: Yes, this tablet press you see in front of us here is making around 40,000 tablets an hour.
11: I'm not surprised that it's making so many because it's just whizzing, it's a cylinder whizzing around now, and I can just see hundreds of tablets in what the past minute that we've been here.
10: The way the tablet press works is a rotary die, which is uh, a plate with loads of holes in it with two punches, top and bottom punches. So as the plate goes round, the powder fills up all the holes and the punches then compress it into a tablet and then punch those tablets out.
12: And you're measuring how much powder you got in there by basically if it fills up the plate, then that's going to be a consistent volume every time.
10: That's right.
11: So now we have tablets and they've been checked that they are correct, but what next between here and actually sending them out?
10: So what we do before the tablets leave this facility We then coat the tablets in a coating machine, and the coating process is rather like a tumble dryer where we're spraying liquid onto them and coating them slowly. And part of the reason for coating the tablet is to protect the ingredients from the environment, for example. It could also be masking any unpleasant taste when the patient takes the tablet, ease of swallowing the tablet, and it can even be used for improving the mechanical strength of the tablet.
12: I guess you can affect how it's dissolved so you can put a coating on there which isn't dissolved in the acidic conditions of your stomach so it can get through to the small intestines.
10: That's exactly right and after the coating process the next step after that is actually the packaging process so they can either be packed in what we call blister packs but they also can be packed into bottles.
11: We've now moved away from the actual manufacturing area on the site but we've seen the ingredients being mixed, um, tablets being formed and coated but Andy, how throughout this process are the tablets tested to actually make sure that they're all actually the same and uniform?
10: The quality assurance of the product is that each of the unit operations are fully understood and known, and all the critical parameters are monitored through the process. And during each of those stages, samples are taken and ensured the various test parameters are achieved, such as at the tablet press stage, we take the samples out and test for hardness, test for thickness, test for dissolution. And as a result, we know that the quality of the product is good at all points in time.
3: Andy Robertson from GlaxoSmithKline talking there to Meera Senthilingam and Dave Ansell who went on a tour of the company's drug manufacturing site in Hertfordshire.
1: Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking about the science of aspirin. Our guest this week, Peter Rothwell. Let me open the batting to you, Peter, because we've got quite a few questions here. I have this one, which uh, comes in from cdybadahl on Twitter, catchy name. And he says, is aspirin addictive?
9: Um, Good question. No,
2: essentially. Cat over to you, that was quick.
3: <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Um, we've had another question from Ben Campbell on Facebook, and he says, can you give aspirin to non-humans?
9: You can. A lot of research has been done uh, using aspirin in, in animals, and in fact the first observations about prevention and treatment of cancer were in uh, animal models.
2: Do you know about cats, though, Peter? Because Gwyn Fisher on Facebook says, is it true that aspirin is actually poisonous for cats? By the way, I love the podcast. Um, I'm not sure about cats, actually. I wouldn't feel confident about saying anything about that. I know that dogs can take aspirin because I used to give my dog aspirin and ibuprofen, and I've actually spoken to a vet um, who informs me that these drugs do work quite well in in them as anti-inflammatories because my dog had a bit of rheumatism. I I don't know about cats, though, I have to admit. Um, Luciano Medrano on Facebook says, why do willow trees actually make uh, salicin, the aspirin-like agent that they produce? That's a very good question. It,
9: it, it looks very much as though a, l- a lot of different plants synthesize silicylic acid. It's very effective in warding off infections and uh, treating particularly fungal infections in plants. And so it looks as though it's, uh, it's synthesized for that purpose. And in fact, one of the, uh, the downsides of uh, modern food production is that we get a lot less silicylic acid from our diet because uh, all of our food now
2: is pristine with no infection. It's good to know that the plants can treat their own headache, isn't it, Kat?
3: We've had a question from Kira Nirvana and R. Brian Mallory on Twitter. And they want to know more about who might not be suitable for aspirin and what sort of people actually shouldn't take it.
9: Well, anyone with a history of uh, bleeding from the stomach or from the gut should certainly talk to their doctor first. There are other treatments that can be given to help that and allow them to take aspirin. Anybody with uh, asthma should certainly discuss it with their doctor. Some patients with asthma are allergic to aspirin, so uh,
2: those are the two main areas. Sort of spin-off from that, uh, Peter. NSHQ on Twitter says, Question from the wife, can you take aspirin with alcohol? Yeah, we believe you. (laughs) Uh, He says um, she wants to know if she can drink alcohol if she's taken aspirin. And as a sort of relation to that, Joshua Spell says, If I wake up with a raging hangover-induced headache, is aspirin the miracle cure for me?
9: OK. Um, you you can take a moderate amount of alcohol with aspirin. There's no, there's no major problem there. If you drink a lot, then uh, it will increase the risk of uh, stomach problems. Um, aspirin versus paracetamol for hangovers, it's very difficult. It's an individual thing, really.
2: Um, Edith uh, Paston says, how does aspirin interact with drugs or other food? And I suppose this might also be important if people are considering using herbal remedies and things. Are there any interactions there that could be dangerous?
9: Not many interactions that could be dangerous. Uh, there are some substances that affect the absorption of aspirin, but in fact it, it, it isn't a problem for the vast majority of prescription drugs.
2: Rosemary in Summersham is wondering, what about the impact of aspirin on blood pressure? Is there one?
9: Very small effect. If you take high doses of aspirin, it can increase blood pressure slightly, but uh, it's not a problem in clinical practice.
2: William McClellan has written here saying, does taking aspirin every day, such as 75 milligrams, little baby one, actually negatively affect your red blood cells?
9: If you are one of the few people that gets bleeding from your stomach on aspirin, then that can occur very slowly without you realizing it. And so a very small proportion of patients do get anemia. But in most patients there's there's no effect on the blood count.
2: And very briefly just to finish us off, um I love this question. At Whittlesford said, "Would aspirin be approved today in a drug trial?"
9: Uh, no. Why? It's got probably got too many side effects. E- even though it's an effective drug, the drug companies would worry that they'd be sued because of the risk of bleeding, and uh, they, it wouldn't be commercially viable because the, uh, the lawsuits
2: would uh, offset their profits. Oh dear, isn't that a damning indictment? Kat,
3: oh, over to oh you. Oh dear. And uh, from talking about pain relief to our own pain in the posterior, not really, it's time to join Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week.
4: This week's question, tell the pills where it hurts. Hi, I'm Andrew McCloskey from Edinburgh, Scotland, and I was wondering how pain relief drugs target pain and why we don't go numb in random parts of our body. How do painkillers find the sore bits?
13: I'm Tim Warner and I'm from Barts in London, School of Medicine and Dentistry. The explanation for this lies in what causes the pain and how we experience it. If we imagine, for instance, pain coming from something like a damaged tissue, you could think of something like an arthritic knee, for instance, then in that knee there's a local generation of factors that sensitize the local pain nerve endings. So that local sensitization depends upon what's happening locally in the knee. And then through the nervous pathways, this is then taken as a signal to the brain where we perceive the pain. And so that part of our perception depends on what's happening in the central nervous system. So we have that as an idea in our heads, we can think about how the pain relieving drugs work. The nonsteroidal drugs that we use for muscle and joint aches and pains, and those are drugs like ibuprofen, they stop the formation of the sensitizing factors, in this example, the knee. And as only the arthritic knee is making the factors, It's only there that the ibuprofen-type drugs act, and so we feel less pain in our inflamed knee. And at the same time, the other knee doesn't go numb because it isn't making the sensitizing factors, so there's nothing there for ibuprofen to inhibit. If you had a more intense pain, say you had an operation on your knee, so you might use something stronger, such as a morphine-type drug, and those ones do work within the central nervous system. So those drugs are gonna cut down the signals in the brain coming from the nerve collections in the knee and so they cut down the sensation of pain by a central effect in the brain and not by acting locally in the knee like ibuprofen. But because they act centrally, they have a tendency to also generally dampen down pain pathways. So to a certain extent, you may have a feeling of numbness somewhere else.
4: So non-steroidal painkillers can block pain from sites of inflammation if they're dispersed right through the body. As Tay said on the forum, your body can become quite good at processing these chemicals over time, which is why frequent users of painkillers find the drugs less effective. Next week, we've a rather close-cutting question.
13: Hi, this is Neil from Villa Tesslan in Switzerland. I've been listening to the podcast for a while and I've got a question for you. Why is it that a potato peeler doesn't need sharpening where every other kitchen knife does?
4: My parents have had the same potato peeler for 20 years. Why won't they get a new one? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or write on our forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com
3: forward slash forum. Love it. If you know the answer, drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Chris.
2: Thanks, Kat. Well, that's all for this week. We've run out of time. Thank you to our guests, Jim Tour and Peter Rothwell, and also to our production team, Sarah Costa, perry Mira Lingam, Tom Simpkins, Dave Ansel, Diana Carroll, and Ben Valsler. We're back next week with a Q&A show show all your science questions answered send them in to me chris at thenakedscientist.com if you'd like me to answer one otherwise have a great evening and see you next time goodbye
1: the naked scientists comes to you from cambridge university and is supported by the welcome trust the epsrc the natural environment research council and uk fast for more information look us up online at thenakedscientists.com